all and welcome to Michigan PolicyCast. My name is Matt Hiller. And I'm Sean Danino. Today is Friday, February 17th, right at about 7.30 p.m. Uh, I think it's important to add that timestamp because things seemingly change by the minute uh, within this current uh, political climate. Today, we'll be covering a number of stories about the new Trump administration, new developments that have happened since last week, as well as a focus on the press conference that he had. So I wonder, Sean, if you can kick us off. Yeah, so despite the feedback that we've gotten on sometimes being too favorable to Trump, it's always nice to start with something positive. <laughs> um, and there is something that he said this week that was slightly less evil. Um, this was during a press conference um, or a televised conversation that he had with Canadian business leaders. Um, he met with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister this week. Um, and he mentioned that women are the primary source of income in 40% of American houses. This is not an acknowledgement that we expect to hear from the Trump administration. He also said in a refreshing shift um, that we need to make it easier for women to manage the demands of having both a job and a family. We also need to make it easier for women entrepreneurs to get access to capital. So this acknowledgement of the disconnect that it's more difficult for women to get access to funding and capital, particularly um, female entrepreneurs, was refreshing to hear and uh, definitely a break from the typical rhetoric we hear from Trump. I wonder, are there, are there any, do you have any other thoughts on that? Uh, not necessarily, though I do have another piece of less evil news to, yes. uh, to provide. Uh, Trump, in response to the deportation waiver program established by President Obama uh, called the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, most commonly referred to as DACA, uh, stated that it would remain in effect or in limbo uh, and acknowledged the fact that we're going to deal with DACA with heart uh, and pointed out GOP opposition to the program as something that it's a very difficult thing for him because he knows uh, that he loves these kids and I find it very, very hard doing what the law says exactly to do that the law is rough. So similar Definitely welcome, a break. A break and sort of an amount of daylight in what has been a very strong no-nonsense rhetoric towards immigration by the Trump administration. Yeah, and it's. I think it is important to, to taper the rhetoric that we hear from Donald Trump with the reality of some of the policies that are getting leaked from the administration. Uh, today we read some commentary about the potential to mobilize over 100,000 National Guardsmen to help immigration and customs enforcement agents to deport people, particularly from Mexico and Latin America. Um, in a particularly disturbing story, a woman is being detained with a lot of press following the story, being detained by ICE agents in Texas after pursuing domestic violence charges against an abusive partner. So this is something that especially coming from a social work background, is particularly disconcerting mm -hmm. to me. I think that it sets a very dangerous precedent where people are not necessarily going to report the crimes that they experience, um, particularly marginalized communities who are more susceptible to these crimes. And I think that this, more than anything, will reduce trust in law mm -hmm. enforcement, which is not something I think the Trump administration intends to do, but definitely can be a, a consequence here. Absolutely. Additionally, if listeners want another opportunity to sort of learn more about both these anecdotal uh, examples of ICE agents sort of going above and beyond and violating trust of, of citizens, there's a great episode by On The Media that we'll link to in the show notes that profiles a Muslim family who are U.S. citizens that had gone to Toronto for a wedding and had experienced the most abusive and horrendous treatment by ICE agents uh, upon their return into the U.S. As another example, as Sean had mentioned, an anecdotal example of 
this immigration rhetoric going above and beyond to the point of really denying basic human rights to U.S. citizens. Yeah, it really is amazing how much the approach of ICE and the TSA has shifted mm -hmm. in such a short period of time. In other news, uh, Congress voted this week to get rid of a law that Obama passed that prevents mentally ill people from buying guns. So this already passed in the House with a vote of 235 to 180. Um, it is set to be voted on in the Senate, and it looks like it is going to pass. In addition to all Republican senators, the Democratic Senator Joe Manchin was also in favor of the rule. So the Senate vowed Wednesday to join the House in revoking the rule. It would have required the Social Security Administration to add about 75,000 people that are currently on disability support to the National Background Check database that would deny them gun purchases. Um, these individuals suffer from schizophrenia, psychotic disorders, and other problems to such an extent that they're unable to manage their financial affairs and other basic tasks without help. So this is a little bit of alarming news, definitely pro-Second Amendment move and something that we, we have to, to some degree, attribute to the National Rifle Association and the power of the gun lobby in the United States. Absolutely, and I will freely admit sort of my uh, background and regional bias towards these issues, but I, I personally have, have very little tolerance for some of these uh, pro-gun measures that I think when you weight the benefit of safety with the cost of denying somebody, particularly in this case, somebody that suffers from a mental disability the right to own a firearm, I think that that equation is, is a, a no-brainer for me. Let's, um, let's switch gears a little mm -hmm. bit and talk about Michael Flynn. So I will attempt to connect the dots uh, with this story with Michael Flynn and his resignation. Uh, so the story began on December 29th uh, when Flynn had a conversation with the Russian ambassador to the U.S. Uh, the topic of that conversation is one in which um, was the source of controversy. So to step back, during the uh, run-up to the 2016 election, it became clear that Russia had attempted and successfully meddled in the affairs specifically of the DNC, but potentially other, uh, other ways of hacking data to influence the election. Right. In response to this, the Obama administration uh, applied sanctions to Russia. The conversation then that Flynn had on December 29th with the Russian ambassador to the U.S., it became uh, clear through a Washington Post story that the topic of that conversation was a promise to reduce those sanctions to roll them back, right? To roll back the sanctions in the upcoming Trump administration. Yeah, so in a nutshell, it sounds like the Obama administration, on top of the existing sanctions that already existed on Russia because of Ukraine and other transgressions, they increased the sanctions because of their meddling in the 2016 election. And Mike Flynn specifically spoke to the Russian ambassador. It also sounds like he spoke to a couple Russian officials. Um, now, we, we need to verify our sources here, but the, essentially, he spoke to Russian officials about the reality that these sanctions, once Donald Trump would be in office, would be rolled back. It was essentially him saying, yeah, you know those sanctions that the Obama administration basically just passed. Don't, don't worry about them too much. And that, the interesting thing here is that Sean Spicer said, Sean Spicer being the press secretary said that there's nothing that the general did that was a violation of any sort. And it sounds like the jury's still out on that one. Mm -hmm. um, with specifically regards to the Logan Act, Matt, do you want to tell us about what the Logan Act is? Sure, so the Logan Act is uh, what some might refer to as an obscure 18th century law that prohibits people outside the executive branch from making foreign policy on behalf of the United States. Uh, no one has ever been prosecuted under this act, but the fact remains Michael Flynn 
due to the fact that he had conversations while the Obama administration was still in power, was clearly not part of the executive branch. Right. And the topic of conversation that he had with the Russian ambassador to the U.S. clearly uh, had to do with foreign policy. And importantly, I think uh, we can point out that the Washington Post story that sort of broke this news sourced nine separate people within uh, the intelligence community verifying or uh, testifying to the fact that Flynn had indeed spoken about sanctions. Right. So the response then by the House Oversight Chair, Jason Chaffetz, as well as other investigatory bodies, has been to look at the leaks themselves that resulted in the Washington Post story. Right. Uh, and importantly, not necessarily investigation about the content of the communication between Flynn and the Russian ambassador. Yeah, so there's, there's a couple pieces here. I have so many thoughts on this issue, but it sounds like there was definitely some lying to intelligence officials from Mike Flynn, where he intentionally misled them. Uh, the source of the resignation, in the way Sean Spicer described it, had to do with what he referred to as, quote, an erosion of trust. Mm -hmm. um, Flynn very clearly misled Mike Pence in conversations, in repeated conversations. Um, and it's hard to do justice to how much of a violation this could potentially be. Now, the amount of daylight between the potential for the violation and what is ultimately going to happen through the investigation from the House and from Congress and from the Justice Department, which is now headed up by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, um, to what extent they're actually going to prosecute this malfeasance, uh, I think that's still up for grabs. Mm -hmm. um, another point that I wanted to make about this Mike Flynn story is that it sounds, so from some reporting from the New York Times, it sounds like the catalyst in Donald Trump firing Mike Flynn had a lot more to do with the press's coverage of the story than it had to do with the particular malfeasance because he'd known since either January 27th or January 29th that this misleading was happening and he didn't choose to fire Mike Flynn until earlier this week. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, there's still a lot of moving pieces to the story, a lot to reconcile. There was also um, a report about a Russian official who had a bag put over his head who was in charge of investigating cybersecurity and whether or not that's tied to Mike Flynn, um, who is now facing criminal charges. But there's so many moving pieces to this that are hard to do justice to. Mm -hmm. I think we really just wanted to put out there that this is a story we're going to keep our eye on and probably one that's not going to fade from the news cycle. It will not. And the only way, though, to uncover these moving pieces is for a thorough investigation to be done, which uh, seems to be unlikely at this point. Yes. Moving on to some international news, um, we wanted to talk about China policy for a minute because there's a couple moving pieces here where the U.S. first upset China by taking a call from the Taiwanese president a couple weeks back. That was something we covered in um, our previous episode. Uh, China ended up taking a drone from the United States. Trump initially wanted the drone back and then said, no, nah, we're good. We don't really want it. Um, and then the U.S. didn't communicate with China for about 11 days and then sent a very delayed message to China uh, wishing them a happy new year. Um, and in the conversations that Donald Trump had with the press and with the American public, he made it sound like the one China policy, the, and the one China policy, once again, is the recognition that there is only one China, the People's Republic of China. We do not recognize the Republic of China or Taiwan as a sovereign state. So he said that the, the way he framed the conversation was that the one China policy would be a bargaining chip, that he wouldn't necessarily adhere to it the way previous administrations had, the way the precedent had been set. He wanted to use this as a tool to get things from China. But then after a call with Xi Jinping, the Chinese prime minister, Trump announced that the U.S. will be abiding by the one China policy in exchange for basically nothing. Hmm. Um, so... Another sort of representation about how Donald Trump can be a lot of bluster when it comes to specifically rhetoric about China and foreign policy, but in practice, he does often walk these steps back a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's such an important, 
point to make with regards to rhetoric in foreign policy. This is the one area in which the executive branch broadly and the president more specifically have tremendous power and it's an area in which words matter. And I think it, it's a story, as you said, that it's important to keep our eye on and is one that is sort of a, a broader kind of representation of Trump's tactics, not only with China, but with the international community more, more broadly. Yeah, and we'll, we'll have a lot more to say about words mattering when it comes to talking <laughs> about the, uh, the impromptu press conference that Donald Trump hosted yesterday. But in other international news, um, Steve Mnuchin, the recent Treasury Secretary, uh, was introduced at a press conference earlier this week. Um, his first announcement was very cheery and very interesting, but it was actually about sanctions on Venezuela, which we are targeting for drug trafficking activity. Hmm. Um, the knowledge that Venezuela participates in narco trafficking is not new, but what Steve Mnuchin said is fascinating. Um, he actually called the Venezuelan vice president an international drug trafficker, and this makes me wonder to what extent this is forecasting a more aggressive policy stance towards Latin America, mm. and if more of these countries will be on the chopping block. Um, it was also, <laughs> we, we learned something interesting about economic sanctions. Yeah. Uh, Matt, do you yeah. want to share what we took away from this press conference? Yeah, the fact that both Sean and I learned that economic sanctions are actually the territory of the Treasury Secretary. Yes. Uh, so within the realm of the Treasury Secretary's responsibilities. Yeah, I was, when, when I saw Steve, Steve Mnuchin, who is, a career Goldman Sachs alum. His dad worked at Goldman Sachs. Um, when I saw him up there, I didn't. I predicted that it would. We would hear some horrifying news about borrowers getting their privileges taken away, or some financial tra transparency law getting repealed. But it turned out to be about Venezuelan drug traffickers. Uh, a very clear indictment of the Venezuelan prime minister. Mm -hmm. So this story might be a little esoteric, but. I think it's interesting in what it forecasts and what it tells us about the Trump administration's broader foreign policy. Absolutely. Uh, in other news, we wanted to talk about um, sensitive compartmentalized information facilities, or SCIFs. Um, so SCIFs were a big part of press conferences earlier this week, and in US military defense parlance, it's an enclosed area in which um, a, a building that's used to process sensitive compartmentalized information um, and different types of classified information. So first of all, there's some concerns about the way the conversation went with Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, uh, because there, were, there was not a skiff set up, or apparently there was a skiff set up, but guests were let inside of the skiff. Hmm. Um, when he spoke to him, when he spoke to Prime Minister Abe at, at Mar-a-Lago, mm -hmm. um, better known as the Winter White House now, um, so it's interesting to me because apparently Donald Trump claimed that all of the conversations that happened here were just handling logistics for an upcoming press conference, but there was also a North Korean missile test earlier, mm -hmm. uh, and it seemed like the, the level of chaos and the level of uh, concern from officials on both the Japanese and the U.S. side uh, forecasted that their they were handling something a little bit more important than a press conference. Um, now, there were pictures shared on social media uh, from guests at Mar-a-Lago, and it's the, the level of disclosure and the level of, of seriousness that, that Donald Trump approaches these type of situations with um, is sort of the, the story that I wanted to focus on here. Are there, <laughs> so are there any other examples of this um, that uh, him, him violating these skiff facilities and, and having more open conversations than he should. Are, are there any other examples that come to mind, Matt? I think there certainly are. Just a broader point and what might be a little too cynical, but I get the sense that Trump enjoys playing president more than actually being president. Sure. And this idea that without sort of subscribing to the general norms that are put in place due to security reasons or due to other sort of higher level considerations that have to be made is, as you said, uh, a, a dangerous precedent that I think we'll, uh, we'll have to follow. And, and just as a further example, 
of this going back to when Trump in a seemingly chaotic and uh, ill-thought-out commando raid that left one Marine dead in Yemen uh, was due to a conversation that was done over dinner. Yep. In uh, one in which the National Security Council notably was not in the room and unsurprisingly was poorly planned. Yeah. These, and these stories are worth talking about because actual lives are at stake. Exactly. Uh, when you approach these military raids with the level of callousness and low level of effort where mm -hmm. there actually aren't security advisors in the room when you're making these really heavy decisions about people's lives abroad and, and about Americans' lives as well. Uh, I think that's, that's an alarming precedent to set. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, we, as, we as journalists have a responsibility to call Donald Trump out when, when he makes these type of mistakes. Right, and I think just the, what is most galling to me is the fact that there are rooms, i.e. the situation room, that are created yes. for the express purpose of handling these kind of conversations. Yes, there are literally rooms created for this exact purpose. <laughs> right. Um, now, in other news, this is, uh, this is about the media's reaction to one of Trump's top advisors, uh, Kellyanne Conway. Um, so Micah Brze Mika Brzezinski, uh, Joe Scarborough's wife of Morning Joe, um, actually banned Kellyanne Conway from the show. Um, she called her a dishonest talking head and said she's getting banned for rarely getting the facts right. Um, how should we... How should we feel about this? What are your takeaways, Matt, editorializing a little bit? Well, this is certainly the prerogative of any news station to choose the guests that they have on and the guests that they choose not to have on. And I think that I empathize with this idea that in constantly spinning responses and clouding the truth, if not simply telling all-out lies yes. uh, is a dangerous, uh, it, it's, it's dangerous to have that kind of information uh, presented to a broader public that, that watches these kind of shows. That being said, I don't know if I feel yeah. entirely comfortable with censoring, uh, censoring people that are so close to the Trump administration that I think it behooves the uh, public, regardless of the spin that is put on information, to be exposed to as many people within the administration as possible. Yeah, it's it's it's. I'm very conflicted about this one mm -hmm. as well because uh, I think back to Steve Bannon's comments where he explicitly said the media is the opposition party, and it's it's such a disconcerting precedent and the level, the the quality and the type of relationship that Donald Trump has with the mainstream media and the press and his really fetishizing of ultra right-wing conservative blogs like Breitbart uh, is, is very disconcerting. But I think that the precedent that this sets is interesting. And one thing that I, I kind of want to see more of um, is I want to hear journalists telling these Trump advisors to their face that they're lying in front mm -hmm. of the American people. I think that there's a little bit too much caution around the word lying. And NPR had a great bit about this where they talked about how the definition of lying really requires um, intent mm -hmm. and the intention to mislead somebody. Absolutely. But <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think that that's like a more difficult thing to prove, mm -hmm. but it's, it's an important thing to assert because I see the language of these headlines when the Trump administration does, quote, get something wrong uh, and there are so many, so many instances of that during the press conference, which we're really, really excited to get to. Mm -hmm. um, but we, I, I want to hear more of the press telling Trump advisors that they are lying to their face. In uh, <laughs> maybe in other hard-hitting news, we can first mention uh, the tweet battle between uh, Kellyanne Conway and Hillary, in yes. which. Uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, in response to the Ninth Circuit ruling, uh, sort of finding that the executive order was unconstitutional, yes. tweeted something to the effect of 3-0, implying that the Ninth Circuit court had ruled against the executive order. In response, Kellyanne Conway, still fixated clearly on the election, tweeted Michigan, Wisconsin, 
Pennsylvania. Yeah, bringing, bringing us back to middle school. Bringing us back to middle school. Uh, and in a way that really Trump picked up within his press conference of constantly coming back to being fixated on the election. Uh, and in sort of a combination of both, as you mentioned, these lies and intent to mislead with this fixation on the huge victory that Trump had achieved, especially if you consider the three million people that voted illegally, right. uh, <laughs> that he stated within the press conference that he had achieved the largest electoral victory since Reagan. Uh, it's a statement that is verifiably false, in which, to your point, the media, in response to the statement, really pushed Trump. They called him out on they the spot, right? Out. Yeah. And Trump, in response, said, oh, I was referring to the largest Republican electoral victory, which also was not true, as not George H.W. Bush uh, received more of an electoral margin. And then being pushed further by the media, really conceded the point and said, you know, I had heard this from somebody else, or these are things that I had heard. Uh, and I think it, it proves the point that you made that it really takes being persistent and asking follow-up after yeah. follow-up after follow-up, even to the point of saying that you're lying to really get at the truth. Yeah, to get to really get to the truth and to also call people out on these untrue assertions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's one thing to to say somebody is not not telling the truth, but it's it's another thing to call them out on lying directly. Um, I yeah, I'm really. I feel, I'm curious if, if there will be more of journalists saying you are wrong to mm -hmm. Donald Trump or to his advisors because Donald Trump was verifiably wrong about this. It was not the biggest electoral victory since Reagan. It was not the biggest Republican electoral victory since Reagan. He was wrong on both counts and absolutely did not have the facts and spoke um, without those facts, and there, that was only one of, of many falsehoods during the, the press conference. Um, now, to say more about this press conference, it's, it's worth acknowledging that it was unscheduled as well. Trump really just wanted to talk, and I think this, this press conference from yesterday, Thursday, February 16th, was, was one for the history books. Um, another thing he said that was just plain wrong was that, uh, he was talking directly to the media, as he often does, and he said, you have an approval rate that's lower than Congress. And he said, I think that's right. Uh, it's not. Um, according to Gallup, the approval rating of the media, or 20% of Americans have a positive opinion of, um, of the media, whereas 9% of Americans have a positive opinion of uh, Congress. So absolutely not true. Um, yeah, there were there were so many other things that he got wrong. Uh, Matt, do you wanna do you wanna say a little more about that? Sure. So uh, he also stated that jobs have already started to surge uh, since my election. Ford announced it'll abandon its plans to build a new factory in Mexico and will instead invest seven hundred million dollars in Michigan, creating many many jobs. Similarly, Fiat Chrysler announced it'll invest one billion dollars in Ohio and Michigan, creating two thousand new American jobs. Uh, they were with me a week ago. You know you were here. So these statements, though not incontrovertibly uh, true, also do not, they sort of cloud what is this general perception that the economy was terrible, that Trump inherited, in his words, a mess from the Obama administration, yeah, and that he can't be held accountable for any negatives, yet should be praised for every positive. Right, and, and going back to the story about the Intel chip factory in Arizona from last week, which was an exciting $7 billion investment, um, the reason that Intel's share price didn't see any movement whatsoever was because Everybody inside of Intel, including their shareholders, already knew that this was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And Trump basically just put his name on it after a meeting with the CEO without really deserving much of the credit for this increase. So the, the point we're making about this, this investment in Mexico and in the investment that Fiat, Fiat Chrysler is making inside of Ohio and Michigan, 
this Ford factory moving out of Mexico and into Michigan, I don't know how much of the credit Trump actually deserves. You know, and this, this is a truism that has survived through the ages of the fact that presidents have very little influence over the economy writ large yeah. in the U.S. And that if there was a president that managed to unlock the secret code that allowed for 5, 6, 7 percent GDP growth per year, uh, that knowledge would be shared. That yes. The economy is such an in integrated and complicated mechanism that though rhetoric can change a stock price from one day to the next, the actual economy itself is uh, not the most susceptible to a uh, president's actions. <laughs> Absolutely. And so in other news from the press conference, uh, he, he had a couple comments with regards to certain minority groups. Um, he told a Jewish reporter that I am the least anti-Semitic person you've ever seen. Um, this was a claim that was actually repeated by Benjamin Netanyahu uh, during the earlier press conference this week, which unfortunately we're not going to get to really do justice to this week as much as I really do love talking about Israel. Hopefully that'll be a topic we can do more justice to in the future. Um, but he had, he also had some commentary to um, April Ryan. Do you want to mm -hmm. do you want to talk to us about what he said to her? Sure. So April Ryan, a uh, black journalist, asked if he had any intentions of meeting with. At first, she referred to as the CBC. Uh, Trump, apparently not knowing what the CBC uh, represented asked who was that. April Ryan clarified that it is the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, and in response, Trump asked her, notably a black journalist, whether she would set up a meeting for him with the Congressional Black Caucus. Quote, are they friends of yours? Uh, importantly, in oh response to uh, this statement, the CBC tweeted, uh, hi, we're the CBC. Uh, in response to Trump clearly not knowing who they were, uh, and linked a letter that they had sent to Trump in late January requesting to meet with him. Again, verifiably false statements that are being spouted by our president. Yeah, how much, how much actual policy and, and statecraft and negotiating goes over the head of this president? Mm -hmm. It reminds me of when he wasn't able to properly identify the nuclear triad um, during a debate, um, which was a little while back. But there's a reason I'm bringing up the nuclear triad, because there's a Russian ship right now uh, off the coast of Connecticut where we keep our nuclear submarines, which is one of the three pieces of the nuclear triad. Um, they got within 17 miles of the shore, which is still technically international waters. International waters is more than 15 miles off of any given coast. Um, but when Trump was asked about it, this is, this is the most horrifying story I have heard in a while, potentially ever. Um, the, his response to how to deal with the Russian ship after talking about Rex Tillerson for a minute was that the greatest thing I could do is shoot that ship that's 30 miles offshore right out of the water. So... I'm, I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. I, am, I am really, really concerned that this, this type of rhetoric is <laughs> this type of rhetoric is employed by the president, mm -hmm. that it's considered appropriate. This is the type of thing that really forecasts like a geopolitical conflict on the scale of World War III. And I, I don't think that I'm exaggerating here. This is really, really alarming. Absolutely. And I think, especially if you put it into the context of which, according to a few Russian experts, is a somewhat normal thing. Uh, you know, a ship near nuclear submarines is clearly uh, something that is notable, but also uh, apparently isn't necessarily completely outside of the realm of how uh, Russia had acted before. But Sean, to your point, I think the bigger story is Trump's response. Yes, Trump, how, how he chose to react Terrifying. to it. Um, let's, let's hear more about how he's been responding to leaks and to Flynn. I mean, 
I, I know that I know that you mm -hmm. have a lot to say about um, how he's how he's navigating that process. Sure. Well, so in response to a question about the leaks uh, that resulted, as we mentioned at the top of the show, to, with the Washington Post uh, story uh, alleging that Flynn had spoken to the Russian ambassador about uh, easing sanctions and he, potentially some Russian officials. Yeah, and potentially some Russian officials said that the Trump, in response, said that the leaks are real, uh, as reported by numerous news sites, but that the news itself is fake, uh, which what? seems to be a contradiction in terms. Uh, similarly, uh, in a contradiction of terms, stating that the administration is running like a fine-tuned machine, I think the irony of that statement was lost on nobody, uh, particularly given <laughs> The uh, the Flynn story and also the lack of vetting that has gone on in a lot of the cabinet picks uh, with Puzner sort of withdrawing his name of, from consideration upon realizing that a lot of stories had come out that uh, were none too favorable towards him. Uh, but I think, you know, more broadly, there is, and I know we... We say the word president a lot, but it, it really is important to keep in mind what small actions mean for just general ramifications. Right. Uh, so Trump is clearly using the press conference as a vehicle to speak directly to the people uh, and stated as such while also saying that uh, the media would surely distort the message that he is trying to convey. Uh, yet at the same time, he's delivering directly falsifiable claims such as having the largest electoral victory since Reagan. Um, and though it's a trivial thing, but it, I can't help but draw a parallel between rhetoric yeah. and North Korea in which, you know, if you're in North Korea, you'd believe that Kim Jong-un won every gold medal at the Olympics, which right. directly falsifiable. But if you're provided the platform to speak directly to the public, and if the public has no recourse to find alternative information, right? It's I think it's a dangerous thing. Yeah, and there's there's some information which we don't have in front of us, but it's important to acknowledge the the disconnect between the approval ratings from um, the country as a whole with regards to Donald Trump and the approval ratings we are getting from inside of the party. Um, because I, I believe the tweet that I read was that Donald Trump has never had, it's, he's had the lowest approval rating since I believe 1980 um, across the country. But when you look inside of the party, I believe it was the highest level of support mm -hmm. we have seen um, in a while, and and that disconnect, this this echo chamber effect, where people are really going to Donald Trump as the news, and he is able to make these claims that are wrong. They are absolutely wrong. They are uh, are they lies? I mean, I it's it's hard not to use that term, mm -hmm. but I do genuinely believe that he believes some of the things that he says, mm -hmm. and. When these claims are directly falsifiable and they're still being like bought into by a big chunk of the electorate, um, we have we have some important things to reconcile as a country. Oh, absolutely. I mean, here might be a uh, an illustrative example of the claim that I would consider a lie due to the intent that three million people voted illegally. So yes. we have this lie that is told the consequence of which is to roll back voting rights and to promote voter suppression uh, initiatives. That is a true consequence that impacts arguably millions of people, right. that is to the detriment of our democracy, that's a result of a claim that's made, the intent of which is to roll back those rights and to stay in power. I think this. It's not just hypothetical things. This is really scary, scary stuff. Absolutely. Um, so let's walk through a couple other news stories that, mm -hmm. uh, that grabbed your attention. Uh, Matt, do you want to start us off? Sure. So uh, first, Trump 
said that he plans next week to unveil a replacement executive order to more stringently vet certain immigrants and refugees who seek to travel into the United States. This new order will navigate around the legal objections raised this month by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Uh, additionally, at the outset of the press conference, Trump said that he is nominating R. Alexander Acosta, mm -hmm. who is the Dean of Florida International University Law School to be Labor Department Secretary. Uh, Sean, what do you have for us about FIU? You know, FIU is an interesting university that I can't I can't speak too much to when mm -hmm. when I did when I did do some initial research, I was struggling to reconcile the size of their population with their endowment mm -hmm. um, because they have over 50,000 students and an endowment of less than $200 million, um, which is a very low student funding ratio. Um, I do know they're a public university, but I think I might have to leave it there on mm -hmm. FIU. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, there's, <laughs> so Alexander Acosta is replacing a guy named Andy Puzder, who is CEO of the Carl's Jr. Hardee's franchise. Um, and he withdrew when he was under fire from the Senate um, uh, on Wednesday. And I think it's the, the reason that he withdrew and the reason that several Republican senators were unwilling to support him is being argued. It's, it's, it's a topic of debate right now, but part of it to some degree has to do with um, a tape that was made available of his former wife um, on the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, this tape was made available to specifically senators in a closed room. This was offered by the Oprah Winfrey Show, um, and it was acquired by uh, a journalism source who acquired it from one of the other victims. And basically, the, the theme of the episode was um, privileged women, like women who come from a lot of wealth, um, who experience battery and domestic violence from their partner. Um, and I, I have to acknowledge this domestic violence thing when it comes to the Donald Trump administration, yeah. um, because Steve Bannon, uh, in a story that Rachel Maddow covered earlier this week, when he lived in Santa Monica, was very violent with his wife. He intimidated her into not testifying. He told her to leave the state before um, before a before a court trial was arraigned. And in the court trial, uh, he was actually under fire for also preventing her from calling law enforcement, which is intimidating a witness, a very, very serious charge. Um, so we see domestic violence from the Secretary of Labor, from the Chief Strategist, Steve Bannon. Um, and the details are honestly like too, too horrifying to recap. Yeah, but yeah. it's the last thing I want to say is that Donald Trump is not sensitive enough to these mm -hmm. like domestic violence issues. And it makes me think back to Ivana Trump's autobiography, which you know, this was this was a story that I think got sidelined because of Donald Trump's so many other scandals. But in her autobiography, she recaps one rape when she was with Donald Trump, and she doesn't name Donald Trump explicitly. But uh, I think that Donald Trump's lack of sensitivity around domestic violence and his potential experience with non-consensual behavior, the the sexual assault that the the grabber by the pussy tape indicated, like. These are these are alarming developments, and mm -hmm. they're they're hard to reconcile with the things that Donald Trump says about women in the workplace and and wanting women to be empowered to um, move upward. They're they're kind of irreconcilable claims. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and there's yeah, there's no words uh, in response to just how horrifying all of those stories are, and the fact that they're not isolated. Yes. Uh, okay, so tangent done. Let's tangent keep on done. going through this. Okay, uh, final two news. stories. Yeah. Final two stories. Trump said that the administration plans to send Congress detailed proposals to repeal and replace the ACA in early to mid March. Uh, and the president also, in response to a question during the press conference, denied that his supporters promote racism in their rhetoric, signs, and commentary, and instead sort of blamed his uh, th those that oppose him of planting those kind of people, if not being those people themselves. Yep. Uh, so that's where we are. <laughs> yep. And it's, it's definitely unsurprising from the Trump administration mm -hmm. to defend his supporters in this way. Um, 
Now let's jump into Top of Mind, a segment that we've been doing where we talk about a story that is on the top of our minds. Absolutely. Matt, do you want to start us off? I can, yes. So uh, as uh, many of those in the policy world can probably empathize with, uh, what is at the top of my mind is presidential communication strategies. Uh, thinking about how Trump has really redefined the way that the president communicates with the public. Yes. Uh, so sort of following this from the beginning, uh, George Washington notably uh, presented the first State of the Union in 1790. Then we sort of moved to the first telegraph line used by Abraham Lincoln to reach the masses. The first telephone line uh, was used by Rutherford B. Hayes in 1877. Then in 1922, Warren G. Harding had the first radio address to the public. Uh, then moving towards Truman in the late 1940s with the first televised address. Yeah. Bill Clinton, early 1990s, first email and web chat used Ooh. to communicate to the public. <laughs> uh, web chat. And then notably, Barack Obama uh, was the first president to tweet. Uh, but it sort of, you know, this evolution traces not only the vehicles by which presidents communicate, but also the forms of those communication. Yeah. So especially if we think about the difference between you know, what can be communicated via a telegraph, which you know, to be honest might be a great corollary towards uh, our modern day Twitter, because you honestly couldn't say all that much within a telegraph. Right. Uh, and then moving on to you know, sort of the television age and how we have uh, John F. Kennedy really taking advantage of that platform of delivering his message. Yeah. Uh, and now thinking about President Trump and how he has really embraced Twitter as a way to set policy with 140 characters and how right. his messaging is very much tailored towards these very short, curt, sentences in response and very reactionary yes. uh, responses to uh, specific policy issues. So this is something that I think if there is not a book written about it in the next five years, uh, there should be. <laughs> yeah, I, a couple of quick thoughts. Is it, it feels to me like a theme here is that the medium becomes the message in a lot very of ways. Much, very and, much, well said. And, and, with, and with Donald Trump, I think that you know the fact that he, he goes to Twitter uh, is an indication of the level of nuance that we see from his policies. Um, I think back to Barack Obama and when he used to do AMAs, uh, Ask Me Anythings mm -hmm. on Reddit, and also like what that says about the audience that he's speaking to, his, his target demographic, where Obama is openly speaking with millennials and, and Donald Trump, although he is tweeting, um, yeah. It's not necessarily communicating with the same people. It's it's interesting that the the, the vehicle that he chooses to use. Right. I mean, you're not going to see Trump on between two ferns. Yep. Uh, anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. Yeah. What's on the top of your mind, Sean? Yeah. I I want to talk about Scott Pruitt for a minute because he was confirmed earlier today to head up the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. Um, so when he was Attorney General of Oklahoma, it's a state that has capital punishment. Uh, they tried to put to death an inmate, um, but the drug that was used, um, the, the drug that's formerly used uh, in the past for lethal injections was no longer available. They were produced abroad by mostly European pharmacies, and the European pharmacies didn't feel comfortable with them being used to put people to death. Yeah. Um, so Scott Pruitt uh, decided to try a new drug um, on that he, he'd read about and learned about on what he referred to as the WikiLeaks. Um, I believe he was trying to say Wikipedia there, but initially alarming that he's, Wikipedia is the source of this information about which drug he can use to ethically execute somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and they actually ended up using the wrong drug as well when they executed Clayton Lockett or attempted to execute Clayton Lockett. Um, the execution ended up involving reinserting the needle over a dozen times. At one point, the person to be executed um, helped them trying to insert the needle. He was convulsing. Um, he was having a very unhealthy reaction. Um, the curtain was pulled so that the press could no longer see at some point. And then the governor actually ended up, um, once she was reached and, and the execution wasn't being successfully implemented, um, she called the execution off. So they actually tried to undo the execution, but 42 minutes into this 
horrifying, messy, messy process of trying to execute somebody with a drug that had never been used to execute somebody before, um, the patient ended up dying of a heart attack. Um, so this is, I don't know, this is a horrifying example of the level of attention to detail we see from Scott Pruitt. And in a less, less visceral, but I think equally alarming story, um, there, we're, we're going to be hearing more on Tuesday about this. Um, which is unfortunately after Scott Pruitt has been confirmed to head up the Environmental Protection Agency. But he had some fun with copying and pasting. Um, and specifically, when oil and gas companies would defend their rights to do certain things um, against Environmental Protection Agency claims, um, in, response to, in response to those claims to defend those oil and gas companies, he would this is alleged right now, and we're going to be hearing more about it on Tuesday, but he would actually copy and paste the text from these oil and gas companies' language and put it directly on his letterhead as though those were his claims um, against the EPA. Um, the, these are claims that, yeah, he's under investigation for. But that, that level of attention to detail, um, the level of concern, and the level of effort that he's putting in are, are all really alarming things for a figure with so much power. Absolutely. Okay, well, <laughs> on that cheery note, um, we're going we're gonna to close up our episode. Uh, we thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm. If you want to reach out to us, we can be reached at michiganpolicycast at gmail.com. Um, I'm Sean Danino. And I'm Matt Hiller. Thank you so much for joining us. Mm -hmm.